welcome to the Coalition for Physician Wellbeing's podcast, The Wellbeing Connector, where through our guests, we explore ideas for making healthcare a better place to work and serve. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Today, I'm thrilled to have Dr. Paul Deschamps on the podcast. Dr. Deschamps is a family physician and healthcare leader who advises C-level executives on reducing physician burnout. As CEO of the Sutter Gould Medical Foundation, he led a transformation that improved physician satisfaction from the 45th to the 87th percentile on AMGA's Provider Satisfaction Survey and achieved recognition for the group as the highest performing among 170 medical groups across the state of California, two years in a row. He is the co-author of the book, Preventing Physician Burnout, Curing the Chaos, and Returning Joy to the Practice of Medicine. He speaks internationally, and he blogs regularly at www. PaulDeChantMD.com. Well, thank you, Paul, for joining us today. My pleasure to be here, Michael. I'm looking forward to this. Well, I wanted to jump right in. My first question I wanted to ask you is, I wonder if you can start by reviewing your history, both as a physician and later as a physician leader, uh, uh, can you describe your experiences in both those domains? I'm particularly interested in uh, the issue about physician burnout, how it was or was not part of your thinking as you uh, progressed early in your career. Yeah, so I started out as a family physician, never had an intention to become a leader of anything. Um, but I found when things didn't go right in my office uh, and I was with a group, I spoke up and wanted to fix things. And that led to me getting put on committees and then leading committees and moving up through management ranks uh, to the point where eventually I became CEO of a 300 physician group. But in my practice, um, it was clear there were many problems that, you know, things that could be fixed. And, and generally, I've found that as those problems got harder to deal with, that's what created that sense. At the time, I didn't really think of it as burnout as much as just frustration, running into all these barriers to try to be able to do the work well, to care for patients well, and you know, have the whole team work together effectively. Uh, so it was really from a matter of just improving workflow processes to make everything work the way it should. Um, that led to these leadership roles. And uh, as I, you know, I like to say that when I was a family physician practicing, I wanted the empowerment to be able to fix things that weren't going well in my office. When I became CEO of this 300 physician group, the thought of 300 individual physicians autonomously deciding how they were going to fix the problems in their workflows really scared me. It was like everybody's, you know, we'd fall apart from entropy. So uh, it was tempting to go to a top-down command and control approach to management. But I also knew in my heart that that wasn't right. I wouldn't want anybody to do that to me. I'd had it done to me. And that, that actually is a key driver of burnout. Um, but it doesn't work with professionals like, like physicians. Uh, and so um, we found a way to both empower people to fix the local problems they had, but align everyone around the enterprise-wide success. And it's a, that's really the, the key, I believe, to effective modern management uh, is, is doing that, is empowering. We've got brilliant knowledge workers everywhere throughout our organizations, not just the physicians or even just the nurses. Essentially, people working as receptionists and medical assistants and you know, are all having to make decisions every day, every hour about how to do things better, be innovating on the fly. And that ability 
to do that while knowing you're working collaboratively with the group as a whole, um, creating that culture is key to reducing burnout from a leadership perspective. That's quite an insight. How did you find that that insight? How did you find that balance? <laughs> um, I guess it was trial and error. Uh, you know, it's uh, just thinking I didn't want, um, you know, I never would have wanted somebody to just, you know, you, well, you know, the classic, uh, there's a best practice in how to approach whatever clinical problem it is. And those would always drive me crazy because people would come in and say, here's the best practice for kidney failure or whatever. Uh, it was a best practice in whatever organization they designed it in, but it wasn't necessarily the best practice in a different setting where the patients might be different, the staffing might be different, the phys- physical facility might be different. There's ways to tweak and change and adapt those things. So um, it was really a matter of understanding there's key principles to make things work effectively, but everything always has to be adapted to the local situation to make it work well. And uh, I, I, you know, I think I also didn't realize early in my career that I'm kind of more than I think other physicians a natural systems thinker. I see things more from that broad perspective and um, try to fit whatever I'm dealing with into the system itself. Uh, you don't always want your physician to be a broad systems thinker. I mean, if I've got some acute illness or injury, I don't want my doctor thinking about the broad public health implication of their treatment for me at that moment. I just want them to make sure they're doing the best thing possible for me. But uh, in order to lead well, in order to create these complex organizations that work effectively, we need people who understand and can, can practice systems thinking uh, in leadership roles. Well, given that, let's apply that to uh, the domain of burnout. What are some of the things that people think they understand, but most really don't about leadership and burnout? You know, the most important thing to reduce burnout uh, is fixing the workplace, not fixing the workers. We don't lack personal or individual resilience. We're some of the most resilient people in the world. How many other people have to get ace organic chemistry just to get into the school where they're going to spend the next seven to 12 years preparing to start the first day of their real job? Um, It's not a lack of individual resilience. The problem is the workplace has gotten so complex that it's, um, it's almost impossible to function in if we aren't paying attention to how it works. And who really has control over that workplace? Well, it's the, it's the leadership that have control over budgets, staffing, facilities, equipment, supplies. Uh, if leadership is not deeply engaged in this, then we have, it's going to be very challenging uh, to actually reduce burnout effectively. And most people don't get it. Most leaders don't really understand that. Very nice. And I know from a lot of your work, uh, you've learned a lot from the lean movement. Uh, for those in our audience who don't know, can you say a little bit about what lean is and how that fits into what you're, you're describing? Uh, yes. And I think this is really important to understand because so many people have misconceptions about lean. Uh, they think it's all about efficiency. And in fact, uh, when people, when, and there are places who pursue lean thinking that um, and come in uh, really just simply driving increased productivity and call it lean. But generally they're coming in with a proscribed approach to reduce, to take waste out of a process, but they're not empowering the people who do that workflow to actually do the redesign. 
And a key part of lean is a principle of respect for people that recognizes that the people doing the work know the most about the work, have the best ideas about how to fix that, but rarely get the opportunity to actually do it in an organized way. Uh, so when we approach lean properly, uh, particularly in healthcare, it means that we have uh, a lean expert come in who coaches a team of the people working in that process through identifying their problems and coming up with solutions, testing those solutions, and then putting them into place. But the lean expert doesn't come in telling people what their process is going to be. Uh, the people design that. And this often means that uh, a physician is going to have to be involved in a process that may seem as, as mundane as helping a patient move from the waiting room to the exam room. Uh, that's, that's actually a pretty complex process. If you want that patient in the exam room completely ready for you to go flawlessly so you can walk in the room and be most effective. And, and so we'll ask a physician to spend uh, three or four days with a team redesigning the, the, that flow from the waiting room to the exam room. And oftentimes people will push back and say, I can't do that. My patients need me. My colleagues need me. I need to be productive. If I spend that time away, uh, that's bad. And so I'll ask them if they ever spend time on a vacation or go to see me course, because when they do that, they're not there for the patients or colleagues. And indeed, when you come back from that, um, that within a half day, if not half an hour, well, all that replenishment you got from your vacation is gone because things are so chaotic. In fact, you can't really implement your new knowledge necessarily well because things are, are so chaotic in workflows. Uh, the time we spend away from seeing patients where we're redesigning the workflow to make it more effective so that we can actually focus better on providing good patient care, that's the most important time we spend away. Now, it doesn't have to be three or four days. Uh, even 15 minutes every day can make a huge difference. We found this in when we put huddles into place that address those issues, that look at uh, preparing for the day to make sure we've got the capacity to meet the demand, that we're identifying problems and fixing them, that those that 15 minutes, even if it means giving up a, a slot to see a patient, um, offices that do those huddles well actually have higher productivity as well as better patient satisfaction, better, better staff experience, better access, uh, all because the team comes together and prepares for the day and works uh, collaboratively in that process. So it's all about us, the, those of us who are doing the work actually and in being involved in fixing the problems. And quite often it's that sense of a lack of autonomy. Somebody else is telling us what to do rather than us having the ability to fix the, the barriers and frustrations we find um, that lead to a lot of the demoralization that's involved in burnout. So you mentioned just now, and you also wrote in your book about one of the keys that differentiates when lean is done right is when the leaders really show the respect for the people who are doing the work. And I'm curious from your experience, are leaders aware when they don't, are, aren't feeling that respect or showing that respect? And if you, if you encounter someone who's not, how do you interact with them? What do you say? Um, yeah, I, I st most leaders really are not fully aware of how they come across to the people working on the front lines. And I've been guilty of this myself. Um, the Probably the most powerful way to deal with that uh, is first the leader has to, um, you know, it take, takes a great leader, it takes a combination of humility and drive, uh, you know, willing a vision to, to think things could be better. Um, and a willingness to, to actually describe that vision, to encourage people 
uh, to go forward, but to also the humility to listen carefully. Um, one of the most effective ways that leaders can actually start to understand and gain respect for the front lines is shadowing people while they're working. Uh, you know, just similar when we're med students and we're following and attending around trying to learn how to do this complex job. Um, a leader who shadows people while they're working learns things you otherwise cannot learn. You can't learn sitting in a conference room with a committee looking at spreadsheets and reports does not really allow you to understand the challenge that the people who are doing the doing the operations in your organization, those challenges that they're experiencing. So in fact, this is a real struggle for physician leaders is to decide, do I continue to see patients? How much clinical time should I have when I've got all these demands to be focused on, on leadership work? And, um, and, and we fear that we won't have credibility if we're not seeing patients. We're not, quotes, feeling the pain that, uh, you know, all the docs are feeling in the organization. Uh, when I became CEO, I, I wasn't able to see patients effectively and do the administrative work. So what I did instead was I did start shadowing clinicians. And I realized, while I wasn't feeling, personally feeling the pain of being a family physician any longer, I was able by shadowing to see the different pain that a pulmonologist had compared to an orthopedist, compared to an obstetrician, you know, compared to a pediatrician. And in fact, understanding their challenges just by following them in their office for a few hours gave me insights I otherwise could never have gotten in terms of what they needed and how I could best support them. So it's that willingness to be humble, to admit you don't know everything, to learn by, observe, by observing and by talking to people and asking them, you know, what they need and how you can help them. That's fascinating. Um, from your experience, can you describe an organization with, with you've worked that really did it well and what, what their experiences are like and how you worked with them? Um, you know, well, a couple. One, the, the one that was the most effective, and this may sound um, self-serving, but when I was CEO of a 300 physician group in the Central Valley of California, I, I came in um, knowing that I wanted to make a difference and thought I finally had a chance, not really quite knowing for sure what to do. But I saw a presentation by another organization that had used a lean transformation as an approach to do this, and I realized that was the key. Um, over five years, we implemented not just lean workflow redesign, but a true management system and culture that did this, empowered people while aligning them. And at the end of that time, um, we found a few things that happened. Uh, you know, the, the physicians did get very engaged. And in fact, they I quickly identified when something didn't go right with an office visit and would redesign that workflow, even a little micro level of redesigning something but knew it was making a difference for them. But at the big picture level, what happened was we got recognized by Consumer Reports and the California Health Performance Information System as the, as the top overall performer among 170 groups across the state of California two years in a row. We didn't even know they were surveying this, and um, we were very pleasantly surprised when uh, one of my docs walked in with a copy of Consumer Reports saying, hey, look at this. Um, and during that time, we moved our physician satisfaction on American Medical Group Association survey from the 45th up to the 87th percentile. So we did it in a way that, you know, physicians valued and it made a difference uh, for our, you know, for our organization, for our patients, uh, really for our community. Um, you know, in terms of coaching others, it's harder. If you don't have the direct support, you know, if you don't have the direct control, 
you know, helping others get there. What I found oftentimes is it is hardest to get the CEO engaged. So we find in, in other organizations pockets where um, a department gets deeply engaged and that department leader gets it and they make a huge difference. Um, but in other cases, um, it, but it doesn't spread across the whole organization because the whole leader, the, the senior top leader isn't ready to make that full commitment. But I, there's a case of a GI clinic in an academic center where they literally, their waiting room was so full that people, it was standing room only most of the day and they were getting ready to buy more chairs to put into the waiting room. And we came in and started coaching them in this lean process, as I described. And they, within two years, they actually had to start taking chairs out of the waiting room because nobody was in them. The waiting room was pretty empty. The, the patient experience was one where people, you know, things flowed well. The clinician, the doc experience, the, you know, these are faculty members who have a lot going on in their lives. Their experience was going better. Um, and it really had to do with that leader in that particular department who, um, you know, who, who actively engaged in this work and managed to bring along the rest of the department, even though many of the docs were skeptical about it at first. Very good. So it sounds like these uh, processes work the best when the whole organization buys into it and the leadership is key. How do you make the case to uh, either you or people who are listening who want to make the case for these types of changes to the most senior leadership? You know, you know, there's a couple of things that are key there. One is, um, just as we're, you know, I look for senior leaders to be empathetic with, with the clinicians. Um, we also have to be empathetic with the needs of senior leaders. You know, we know there's high levels of burnout among doctors and nurses. There's also growing levels of burnout among senior leaders. So just understanding what their stresses are. And, you know, a lot of senior leadership, there's part of it is having a vision and working towards achieving that vision. The other part is just keeping the doors open and the lights on. And these days, that is a real challenge because the financial issues are such so dire. Um, so recognizing that, finding ways to adapt and make it, make it palatable for senior leaders. Um, certainly doing the coming in with a demonstration of return on the investment that the leader's going to make in making these changes is important and helpful, um, but also tailoring it to what the organization has the capacity to handle. Uh, one place we came in, they, have asked, they asked us to start improving burnout and said, we really could redesign our whole primary care workflow. That would be great. Um, and we went to a couple of primary care offices to offer to help them to do that. And we realized they, because of staffing shortages, they didn't have the capacity to actually do a full workflow redesign and become a pilot site for that work for the rest of the organization. So instead, we started a, a lighter touch, which were the, the, um, the huddles. And we implemented huddles in one pilot office. Those went well. And in fact, as others saw that, uh, they wanted to adapt it. We thought we were going to be doing about six in the course of six months. Um, it became so popular, there was so much pull for it, that we actually ended up doing about 20 in the course of that first three months. And now with this organization we've been working with about a year, we have 95 sites live with uh, huddles. And they're um, almost uniformly uh, really uh, making a difference in the experience for everyone involved. Uh, again, it comes down to leadership. So the local leadership of the, the physician lead and the manager at that site when they're deeply engaged, it definitely works more effectively than when they're not. 
Um, but it's this adaptability, you know, to engage with senior leaders, we've got to meet them where they are, you know, help let them know we feel their pain, but also that there is hope that we have a solution and um, we can start working towards that uh, to, to make sure that um, we're truly helping. And for those who are uh, not in a senior leader position but want to make a difference in their local environment, what are the first and most important things you would uh, suggest they address? Is it huddles or is it something else that you think might be most appropriate, most way of advancing the cause? Yeah, you know, the there's a, um, there's a couple of thoughts there. One is there's really two key facts. You know, when we think about the Stanford model for uh, improving professional fulfillment, there's three key areas. The first is just enhancing individual resilience. The second is improving practice efficiency. And the third is the culture of wellness. Well, the resilience, certainly people can work on that together. Um, efficiency, there are things you can do in your own office um, that can make a difference. Um, some of them are as simple as uh, in between patients, um, many physicians like to, if they have a time, like to go back to their office, get a little privacy um, while they're trying to think through or you know capture some notes or do in-basket. If you actually spend time with your st- support staff, Quite often, you can reduce the in-basket challenge because the support staff can look at the in-basket, ask you a question, and resolve it without having to go through the whole email back and forth thing. Um, there's just simple ways of creating more of a team sense in your office that can make a difference. Um, so that's from an efficiency standpoint. From a culture of well-being standpoint, um, just be being there with people, recognizing the things that impact well-being, you know, appreciating the people that you work with, building that sense of community with them in little ways um, and honor, treating, making sure everyone is being treated fairly. And when there's challenges around conflicts of values or other issues that you have a discussion with people about it, um, you can create a culture in your office that makes a huge difference. And I've actually, as CEO of a large group, going from office to office, it became immediately apparent to me when I went into an office to shadow uh, which offices had management that was leading in a way that was very positive for that microclimate of that office, and which ones were not? Uh, and um, and then how, you know we offered how, help. How to did managers. you recognize that? Well, what did you notice? Oh, um, well, well, people had smiles on their faces. You 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 can see you know when when something was needed, everybody jumped up to help. They collaborated. Um, the you know they recognized each other. You can just tell when people are getting along and when they're not. Um, it, it was it was that kind of simple organic feel to it. Uh, quite often you could see differences in metrics as well, um, but there's just that it's palpable. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure quite how better so to So what you're saying it. is a, a well-run department makes people happy and a happy department makes people makes a well a department run well is what you're saying? Um, yeah, yes. Yeah, they go together for sure. For sure. But it's that sense of, you know, this one place that is actually one of the offices. We were in the process of redesigning it, but it was one of the oldest, dingiest places that we had. But the the manager in that office was one of the warmest, most caring managers that we had. And in an office where you'd think people would be demoralized, um, they were some of the happiest and most collaborative there were. Now, once they got the new office, they just, you know, really blew it out of the water. But um, but it's, it, people will oftentimes try to blame things like, well, our office is old, you know, this work, you know, the hallways are dark, it's hard to get around. And certainly those are factors and we can make a huge difference by that redesign work. But as important, if not more important, 
is the leadership. Um, in fact, we, the redesign office we did in that office was wildly successful. The redesign, very similar redesign we did in another office, the leadership was not positive. And that office, despite the new design, really struggled. So in some ways, we were also saying as organizations choose their future leaders, there's some qualities to look for that uh, will help them be more successful in these types of efforts. Oh, absolutely. You know, and this is, I think, one of our challenges in healthcare is, you know, we have, we do clinical care, quality clinical care is absolutely, you know, the most important thing. But we often end up promoting people who are great clinicians who may not be great leaders and certainly oftentimes have not had any leadership development. And um, so, uh, you know, and we do a disservice both to the great clinician who's then struggling trying to be a, a good leader when they don't really know how, um, as well as to the people reporting up to them. Uh, so it's there's leadership and clinical care we know are different. Um, and we should be very careful about who we put into those positions. Um, as we redesigned the, the organizational chart and the leadership roles in our organization, uh, we put a lot of focus on that, understanding you know, who really had that talent innately and where people had opportunity and could benefit from some training and skill development and coaching. Can you speak to a little bit about the uh, training and coaching? What type of coaching for someone who wants to be a future leader and improve their skills, what should they be looking for? Uh, you know, one of the key things, we're fantastic problem solvers. And when we see a problem, we love to just solve it. In fact, I'm so guilty of this at home. You know, my wife may be describing a challenge she's having to me. And she doesn't, she wants to talk about it and think about it out loud with me. Meanwhile, I'm just trying to solve it for her, and she she doesn't often appreciate my great solutions that I've come up with for her. Um, and it's the same thing in management. You know, if so, with the huddles, one of the things leaders do is go and attend a huddle to see how the team is doing, working, preparing for its day, and solving its problems. And if that if a leader observing the huddle comes in and starts providing solutions to the problems that are being discussed, we're doing a disservice to the people in the in that office. They're, they're really the key is to help them develop their problem-solving skills. So we do that by asking questions to help them think more carefully, not by telling them what a great solution would be. But as physicians, where we're often you know, telling our patients, this is what you need to do, I mean, we've developed that skill set so effectively um, that it's our natural, it's what we fall back to naturally when we see a problem. And it takes a lot of training to realize that's not what we really should be doing. Our job as leaders is to develop others, not to tell them what to do. Very nice. So we're about close to our time up today, and I wanted to know, did you have any closing thoughts or reflections you'd like to share? Um, you know, I think the, the probably the most important thing is uh, this idea of building connections between leadership and frontline clinicians. And some of the most effective ways to do that are to find opportunities to be together in an effective and meaningful way. And that shadowing is really key to that. Um, so if you're, if you're a frontline clinician and you know you've got a manager that you've got a relationship with, invite them to shadow you a little bit just to understand the actual operations. You know, nobody knows what really goes on inside most exam rooms because once we're in the exam room, unless you're in a very strong team-based care approach, uh, nobody's really seeing what's happening. 
Um, so that helping managers understand the real challenges can make a difference. Um, similarly, as a leader, uh, shadowing is so powerful. And it's, you, you may wonder, how am I going to find time? I'm already booked 60 hours a week. Um, proactively blocking a couple hours once a week or even every other week at first to, and, I, and scheduling a shadowing session with someone ahead of time where you plan it, you know you're going to go there and go through that process. And I'm going to talk in great detail later about um, how that shadow, you know, how to do that shadowing effectively. But that time together is key. Um, one other opportunity, and I'll wrap up with this, is uh, we've been finding great effect with a, what's called a CEO clinician council or a senior leader clinician council uh, in which the either the CEO uh, sits down with frontline clinicians in a particular department like the ED, hospitalists, uh, ICU, you name it, or the CEO plus their that's that her direct reports, the senior team does that. And in those meetings, what happens is uh, the CEO, the leadership may describe something about what's going on with changes in the hospital or the office, but uh, more importantly, senior leaders listen to the concerns of the frontline clinicians. Uh, and while they're listening to those, um, asking questions to clarify, making notes about uh, what they and making commitments about what they'll do to you know learn more about the issue and or start to address the issue, and then following up after the meeting uh, with an actual review of what what they've done to make the difference. And if these meetings happen monthly or quarterly, you can start a rhythm of hearing what's happening on the front lines, understanding the problem better, taking action, and uh, then confirming that action and continuing that cycle. Uh, and that can be transformative in terms of relationships, helps clinicians feel truly valued by senior leaders, helps senior leaders more deeply appreciate the challenges frontline clinicians have, and just builds a connection that otherwise uh, isn't there. So, in fact, one of the one of our efforts right now is at, at working with a number of safety net hospitals, and we call it transforming um, clinician leadership relationships. Uh, and it's that valuable. Well, with that, I want to thank you for your time today and all that you do. It's been great having you on the podcast, and so thank you very much. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, Michael, and I really appreciate what you're doing with the podcast to help communicate all these different aspects about uh, burnout and opportunities to improve it. Well, that's our show for today. I want to thank Dr. Paul DeChant for joining us today and for sharing both his insights and personal story. If you wish to contact Paul, you could reach him at his email, paul at pauldechantmd.com or his website of www.pauldechantmd.com. MD.com. If you wish to learn more about the coalition, please visit our website at www.forphysicianwellbeing.org. You can also check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. I also want to thank our volunteers and the staff from the coalition who made this podcast possible. Finally, I'd like to thank ACESIS, A-C-E-S-I-S Incorporated, for sponsoring my time working on this podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and his guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Coalition for Physician Wellbeing, its board, or other members of the coalition. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Brown, wishing our caregivers out there meaning, purpose, and joy in the practice of medicine. Together we are stronger. Until next time.